Ramble. My dog Mango has been with me through some really crazy times in life. I mean, she's been with us for the past 10 years. If you guys don't know, Mango is my little French bulldog with half hair. Okay, she's fuzzy only half the time. And she is literally the glue of my family. I have quite literally named an entire podcast and a YouTube channel from my dog Mango. She is the reason that these channels exist. But three years ago, Mango was diagnosed with this autoimmune disease and she was always at risk of excessive bleeding. Her fur was falling out in clumps. It was it was a pretty stressful time in my life. I was constantly emotional about Mango being in pain and then I would be, get so stressed out every time I started going over the vet bills. Every time we took her to the vet, it was like thousands of dollars because her condition was so difficult to treat. And I am just so thankful that we had savings to cover it. I wish I had known about Spot Pet a few years back. It would have just eased so much of that stress. Our partner, Spot Pet Insurance, is here to share a message today on how they are a secret weapon against the unexpected. Because with Spot Pet Insurance, you can get up to 90% cash back on eligible vet bills. Our dogs are always there for us during our hardest times, and we need to be there for them too. Go to spotpet.com today and get a quote instantly. Visit spotpet.com. Paid ad from Spot Pet Insurance. Waiting periods, annual deductibles, coinsurance, benefit limits, and exclusions may apply. For all terms, visit spotpetins.com slash sample policy. Insurance plans are underwritten by either Independence American Insurance Company or United States Fire Insurance Company and produced by Spot Pet Insurance Services, LLC. Bada bing, bada boo. Welcome to this week's main episode of Rotten Mango. I'm your host, Stephanie Sue. And let's talk about the FBI agent. The FBI agent was watching her from across the store. I mean, he was seasoned enough as an agent. He knew exactly what that little girl was trying to do. She wasn't fooling anyone, especially not a man like him. Three, two, one. There she goes. He knew it. She grabbed the notebook. And without paying for it, this little 11-year-old starts booking it to the front door. Not today, okay? FBI agents are here to stop this type of thing. They're here to fight crime. FBI agents here to catch a little thief? <laughs> yes, this is, a, this is burglary. It's grand theft. It's grand theft auto, <laughs> okay? <laughs> he grabbed her by the arm. Hello, little girl. I'm an FBI agent and you have just been caught stealing. You need to come with me right away to the central office where we will be contacting both your parents. They will pick you up. You might even spend a night in jail. Do you know what you've done? This is so messed up. You can't be doing this. Little 11-year-old Sally started to freak out. She knew what she had done was wrong, and her mom had always taught her to make her wrongs right. She follows the FBI agent to the central office. But Sally didn't know that he wasn't an FBI agent, nor was she being taken to the central office. She would in fact be kidnapped for two years, taken from seedy motel to different motel, being assaulted by this man who claimed to be an all-knowing, powerful government official that could always come back and get her, that could have her parents killed if he wanted to. And that is the life that Sally Horner lived for two years. As always, full source notes are available at RottenMangoPodcast.com, but there's a really good book on this case. It's called The Real Lolita by Sarah Weinman. Now, Sarah is a journalist who scoured through court documents, transcripts, prison records, legislative records, testimonies. She interviewed dozens of people for this book, and a lot of them were related to the victim. 
She's honestly such a talented writer, and without her, I think Sally Horner's name would probably be forgotten. So please go check out her book. She also has a few other true crime books that I've heard are terrific, so let me know. But let's get into the main story. Just a quick side note. If you guys listened to last week's mini-sode, this is technically the part two, but I do think that both episodes can stand alone. So uh, all of it's going to come together at the end, but let's talk about Sally Horner first. Sally Horner was born Florence Horner, actually, and everything kind of starts with her mom. So her mom's name is Ella Goff, and she was pregnant with her first child at 19 years old, and the father was a man in his late 30s. He was married to someone that wasn't Ella, okay? So this is, you know, back in the day, it was shameful to have a child out of wedlock. Ella lied and told everybody that Susan was born to her husband and her, but her husband died shortly after she gave birth. He just plopped dead. So growing up, Susan never really knew her biological dad. I mean, I think that she knew his name, but that was about it. I don't know if she too thought that he was dead. Maybe she was just kept in the dark. I don't know. So Ella's raising Susan on her own, and sometimes her parents would help, but it was a rough life and that's when she meets a young russell horner this guy's a widower as well with a son also named russell not confusing at all and the two of them just they kind of click you're a single parent i'm a single parent society is shaming me for being a single parent like let's let's hit it off they start dating and their dates here's the kicker they're documented in the local newspaper so apparently back then this was customary where the tabloids but it was like for locals So they'd be like spotted. It's like Gossip Girl. Okay. (laughs) Yeah. So all of their dates were like documented in the newspapers. Wait, wait, wait. People are following them? Yeah. Like a... Just them? Like a little journalist. No, just anyone in the community. They're like single bachelor Russell. Uh Which that's a lie because problem again, Russell was married. I know. Ella's just having a rough time, okay? Thankfully, at least this time, Russell was at least separated from his second wife. He wasn't living with her, but he never bothered to get a divorce. And back then, I mean, that's just as bad. So they move in together regardless, and soon Ella gets pregnant and gives birth to their child, Florence Horner. Now, for some reason, everybody called her Sally. I don't know how you get Sally from Florence. I think both are beautiful names. But the nickname just stuck. Ella is finally getting her cute, happy fairy tale, right? These two beautiful daughters and this wonderful husband. No, she was miserable. Her and Russell were not happy. Russell had this massive drinking problem. He was physically abusive to his wife and kids. And then during the day, he would go to work as a crane operator, which, I mean, that in itself is just so dangerous. And he was drunk on the job a lot. And then he'd get in trouble, come home, beat his wife and kids. And it was this never-ending cycle. Susan witnessed Russell beating her mom on multiple occasions. Eventually, it got so bad that Ella packed her bags. She scooped up her little girls and she moved them to New Jersey. She tried to cut off all contact with Russell, but I mean, it's pretty hard. The relationship had gotten so toxic and Russell was drinking more and more after they broke up and he was getting depressed and he was blaming Ella. And when little Sally was just six years old, now this is her biological dad, right? Mm Mm-hmm. Russell hung himself in his own garage. Now, I don't know if Sally knew this. All I know is that Sally told her teachers at school, my real daddy died when I was six, and I remember what he looks like. So it's hard to say if she knew how he died or what she remembered about him. Did she remember him being abusive? That's, we don't know. 
So Susan, Sally, and Ella, they're all in Camden, New Jersey, which nowadays is kind of associated with violent crime. But uh, back then, it apparently was marvelous. That's how Sally's old friends describe it. They say, and I quote, when you tell people now, they're shocked. But back then, there were really nice pep rallies here, social events at the YMCA. Honestly, it was it was kind of like a, the neighborhoods were filled with happy, proud, ethnically diverse families. It was a safe utopia, which was really good for Sally because she spent a lot of her time alone at home, unsupervised. Susan had moved out a long time ago at 16 years old. She had gotten a factory job. She married a guy named Al and she's like, you know, working on getting her own family together, starting to get pregnant. And Ella all the time is just working nonstop as a seamstress. She's trying to make ends meet. She would work late into the night. She wouldn't be home till way after Sally came home from school. And even on the rare occasion that Ella was home, the minute that Sally got home from school, I mean, she wasn't walking into like fresh baked food and cookies like Ella was so exhausted she doesn't want to entertain Sally she doesn't want to play peekaboo I don't know what eight-year-olds play (laughs) it's clear okay she doesn't want to play all these little games with an eight-year-old she wants to catch up on her sleep maybe she needs to do some laundry that's it so there was really just not enough mental or emotional connection for little Sally Sally's teachers would walk her home from school since, you know, she wasn't being picked up by anyone. And I think that they knew what was going on at home. And Sally would always complain. I just wish mom was home more. I wish Susan, my older sister, never left. The house is so lonely without my sister Susan. But, you know, she got married to this guy named Al. And he's really nice, but I just wish she was home. So Sally busied herself in all the right ways. She did well in school. She was like a great student. I'm talking honor roll. President of the Junior Red Cross Club. She spent time volunteering at local hospitals. But none of that filled this empty little void inside of her little heart where she just wanted genuine, loving, warm, human connection with anyone at this point. I think that kind of explains what's about to happen next. One day at school, one of the popular girls... Let's call her Regina because she's given off strong, mean girl vibes. She says, hey, Sally, you look alone. You look kind of lonely. Are you bored? Well, why don't you sit with us at lunch? But only if today after school you go to Woolworths and you steal something. So to give you context, Woolworth is a shop near the school that sells school supplies. So I'm talking like candy, notebooks, etc. Like all the kids go there. And Sally, when she's hesitant, she's like, why? Do you need something from Woolworths that you can't afford? And she's like, no, but you can't be a loser if you're going to sit with us. We're the cool kids. So you need to prove to us that you can be cool. But stealing? I, I don't know. Come on. It's so easy. And besides, you're an honor roll student. Nobody's even going to suspect that you stole anything. Okay, sure. So Sally is not a rule breaker, especially not a law breaker, but she just really wanted these friends. So she walks in after school into the Woodwards and her palms are sweaty. And all she could think about was, what if the police catch me stealing? I'm going to go to prison. Are they going to call my mom? Am I going to call my mom from prison? What type of conversation would that be? And she walks in there shaking, honestly, probably looking so suspicious at this point. And she sees a little like 10 cent notebook, you know, those little spiral lined notebooks. Mm -hmm. And she grabs it. She's like, okay, be natural, right? But she's like briskly walking to the front door. I mean, it's clear what she's doing. She just wanted to get the hell out of there. But she's spotted by a man. 
who grabs her arm and he's this middle-aged wearing this big fedora type of dude and he looked pretty terrifying. He had a scar on the side of his cheek and on his neck and he says, I'm an FBI agent. You're under arrest. What? Oh, fork. Her worst nightmare was coming true. I mean, they better at least call her mom, right? I mean, she's going to be so disappointed. After a long 12-hour shift to come home and realize that your daughter is in prison for stealing? What kind of daughter is Sally? Like, that's all she's thinking. And she couldn't hold it in anymore. She literally starts bawling. The man crouches down and he looks her in her eye and says, You see that building all the way over there in the distance? Yeah, City Hall, exactly. That's where we take girls like you to be dealt with. You will be sent to reform school for stealing. Maybe prison even. And Sally's crying even harder. And then all of a sudden he flips a switch, wipes her tear and says, Okay, don't cry. Listen, you got lucky that I caught you. If it was one of my other FBI colleagues, I mean, you would, you'd be in a whole lot of trouble. You seem like a nice girl though. So why don't I cut you a deal? You report to me from time to time and I'm going to let you go. No punishment. So think of it as like probation. I'll find you. You tell me what you've been up to. Show me your report card. And if everything goes well, I, no, nothing. I'm not even going to call your mom. What do you think? And Sally is so freaking happy. She's like, are you serious? Of course, of course. And she runs out of that place, leaves the notebook. She doesn't even care. She doesn't even care that the popular girls hate her now, that they think she's a loser, that she got caught. She was just so happy to not go to prison. She went to sleep that night so grateful for this amazing, sweet FBI agent who's not throwing her in jail, who's saving her mom so much headache, so much heartache. And the next day, she looks around, and he's not there. And then again, and then again. And after this incident, she doesn't see the FBI man for months. And she was honestly really happy. This is the best case situation. Maybe he's gone. Maybe he forgot. Maybe he's like fighting crime and isn't thinking about this. Maybe there's a serial killer on the loose. Who cares about me and my notebook? Come on, FBI agents are busy. He's doing other FBI things. But you and I both know that's not how the story goes. So one day in June, Sally's walking home by herself. And it's about a 10 minute walk from school to her house. And at this point in time, Camden, like I said, was a very safe place. But she runs into that FBI agent from Woolworths. And it was like, oh God. She just wanted to cry again, honestly. She was so shocked. She genuinely had forgotten about him. She was just having a regular day. And now, now here he is trying to take her to reform school, probably. I imagine their conversation to go something along the lines of this. Hey, kid, I'm really sorry. I talked to my bosses at the FBI and I told them you're such a good kid. You have no record. You know, the, the school, you get good grades. But the government wants you in Atlantic City at the headquarters. HQ. What? Headquarters? What, what about my mom? She can't know that I'm in trouble. She already has so much on her plate right now. She's so stressed. We can't even pay our phone bills. I just don't want her to worry about anything more. You said that it was going to be okay. I, I know, but my bosses, they're really, they're trying to crack down on stuff like this. We're trying to crack down on notebook theft. It's a big department. It's like bigger than the homicide unit, you know, the notebook unit. But you're right. Why don't we do this? We don't want to stress out your mom. Why don't you go home and you tell your mom that two of your friends from school invited you to Jersey Shore for vacation. I'll pretend to be the friend's dad and call your mom to explain the rest. 
What do you think of that? Don't worry, I'm not going to mention anything about breaking the law or that I'm an FBI agent, none of that. Sally's like, really? So I just tell my mom that my friends asked me to go on vacation and you're going to pretend to be the dad? Oh my God, that's actually so smart. She's like, thank you, thank you, thank you. So she rushes home and she waits for her mom to get back from work and she's anxiously ready to tell her this plan. And she's like, her mom is confused. Ella's like, Jersey Shore? For the whole week? I, I don't know. I've never even heard you mention these girls before. What were their names again? Since when were you even friends with them? And then the phone rings. Hi, is this Mrs. Horner? It's Frank Warner. I'm the parents of Mia and Terry. I'm sure Sally told you about our Atlantic City trip. My wife and I own a five-room apartment by the seaside, and we have plenty of room for Sally. The girls would love for her to come. Now, Ella's instinct and gut were feeling weird about this. Like something about this Frank guy is rubbing her the wrong way. It's, she's not vibing with it. She doesn't know what it is, but something strange. But she just didn't have a good reason to say no. And she also felt like it was a chance for Sally to get a little vacation. Ella knew that she could not afford one anytime soon. Nowhere near in the near future. So she agreed. But when she hung up, she looked at Sally and she was so confused. Hey, I just said yes. Why aren't you excited? I said yes, Sally. And she goes, oh, okay, thanks. Yeah, that's weird. Yeah. That should be a huge sign, right? Yeah. Wow. So she's like, okay, thanks. On June 14th, Ella takes Sally to the Camden bus stop. She kisses her daughter goodbye and watches her get on that express bus to Atlantic City by herself. So again, this is like kind of back in the day where our parents were a lot more, there were not as many creepy people on the streets or maybe we just don't know about mm -hmm. it yeah. is probably what's going on, right? Yeah. So she just kind of sent her on the bus and Ella could see that Sally sat down next to this middle-aged man on the bus. And she's thinking, is that Frank? Why wouldn't he get off to greet me? It's not like a, it, I would imagine it's maybe more like a Greyhound bus. So it's yeah. not just like, oh, I'm stopping for two seconds, like no one can get off and get back on. I mean, yeah. it's like a one-way trip. Where's his wife and kids? I don't see them sitting near there. Maybe that's not him. Maybe that's the only empty seat and she sat down and maybe they're already at Atlantic City and they're waiting for her at the bus stop now. Maybe that's what's going on. But it was making her feel a little bit uneasy. But she kept ignoring it. And more than anything, Ella just wanted Sally to have some fun for once. Just experience something nice. So a week after Sally was on the bus, Ella gets a letter from Sally. She's having the time of her life. An absolute blast. She's like, Mom, you won't even understand Atlantic City. Like, this is literally heaven. You don't get it. One day we need to come here together. We need to bring Susan. We need to bring the whole squad. It's amazing. Sally would even call to let her know, Oh my God, Mom, don't worry. Everything is okay. I'm having so much fun. Mom, speaking of fun... Can I please stay an extra week? Because we really want to see like these shows in Atlantic City and they're, they're not scheduled for this week. They're scheduled for next week. And they said it was okay. Her parents said it was okay. Please. And so Ella agrees. For three weeks, one week turned into two and then to three, Sally's letters and calls convinced Ella that she was safe and sound and living the dream, living her best life. Ella had no idea that Sally was living a nightmare. She didn't know until it was too late. About three weeks into the trip, 
The calls and the letters, they just come to an abrupt stop. I'm talking radio silence. If Ella wrote back to Sally, it all came back with return to sender stamps on it, and she was starting to freak out. And then at the end of the month, Sally sends one last letter, and it says, Hey mom, I'm leaving Atlantic City and I'm going to Baltimore with Mr. Warner. I will be home to Camden by the end of the week. Don't worry about me. But I decided I don't want to write anymore. Okay. What does that even mean? I mean, now it sounds like something really weird is happening. And on top of this strange letter, Susan, Sally's older sister, was giving birth in a few days. And Sally's whole thing in life had been wanting to be an aunt. She was so excited for this moment. She had been talking about, oh, what should we do for our next niece? Like, what should we do? What should we name her? She was so stoked. That was the only thing Sally could talk about for the past nine months. How much she wanted a big family. So there's no way that she would miss us for anything. Ella immediately picks up the phone. She calls the police and the police went to the address on Sally's mail and it was a local lodging house. They ask the owner, hey, have you seen this little girl staying here? Maybe it's multiple girls. We don't know. Maybe it's parents. Oh, no, there weren't a lot of girls. It was just a guy named Frank and his daughter, Sally. (gasps) No, he didn't have a wife. He didn't have any other daughters. It was just dad, Frank and daughter, Sally. I guess he was in a hurry, though, because when he left, he forgot to bring two of his suitcases with him. Yeah, it's in the room. Do you want me to open it for you? So in the room, the police find the two bags, postcards Sally had written her mom that were never sent. Frank also left all of Sally's clothes that he bought her and even left his beloved hat. There was also a picture of Sally and Ella together that were just left behind. It was one of the few pictures Sally had. And so they spread this across the nation, hoping someone would recognize her. They asked the owner, do you know where the Frank guy worked? Because he was working, right? He stayed here a while. Yeah, he stayed about three weeks. I think he worked at a local gas station. But by the time that the police get there, I mean, he had already quit. He quit in such a hurry that he didn't even pick up his last check. Everyone at the gas station said, it's like he vanished. But he had a cute little daughter named Sally. I don't really like doing chores around the house. I'm going to be honest with you. And I especially used to hate doing laundry. It was just one of my more tedious tasks. It takes so much time. And I often feel tempted to not even bother sorting out my clothes. But I've been trying to motivate myself to get a lot more organized. And I finally found a way to make doing my chores so much more interesting, so much more engaging. And that's by listening to audiobooks on Audible. You guys know me. There is nothing like playing a good psychological thriller. So obviously, that's what I've been listening to. I'm currently listening to The Housemaid by Frida McFadden. The main character, Millie, is out on parole and she's desperate for a job. She doesn't have any money. She's living out of her car and she gets this opportunity to be this rich family's housemaid. Millie agrees, even though there's just something really strange about the Winchesters, especially the wife, Nina. She just seems to love finding ways to make Millie's life very difficult. The family is hiding something and Millie is hiding something and there's just so much tension between Millie and the husband. It's one of those stories that you can't stop listening to and I can't wait to finish it and start the next audiobook in this series. But if Thriller is not your thing, don't worry. Audible lets you pick from thousands of titles to find the perfect soundtrack to your day. You can find audiobooks from any genre, fiction, nonfiction, wellness, self-help. But they also have podcasts like this one, guided wellness programs, comedy, and originals. Living life without using Audible is like eating food with no seasoning. Sure, you still get your nutrients in, but it's missing that extra flavor, you know? So if you want to spice up your day, I highly recommend Audible. Audible members can keep one title a month to keep from the entire catalog. New members can try Audible 
Audible now free for 30 days. Visit audible.com slash rotten or text rotten to 500-500. That's audible.com slash rotten or text rotten to 500-500 to try Audible free for 30 days. To be completely transparent with you, I am still at that stage in my life where if you tell me, hey, something's going to make you feel better or something's going to make your skin clear, I'll probably be like, give me the clear skin. But growing up is realizing that you can have both. And I have made it a habit to implement things in my life that let me have both. Did you know that your gut health really impacts your skin health? And not just skin, apparently your gut health can impact your immune system, your energy levels, even your mental health. That is why I've now added my favorite probiotic from Symbiotica to my morning routine. It sounds weird to say, but Symbiotica's health supplements are now part of my skincare routine almost. If you guys don't know, Symbiotica is a supplement company that only uses clean premium ingredients in its formulas. No seed oils, no fillers, no additives, no natural flavors, and no artificial ingredients. Symbiotica also formulates all of their supplements for optimal absorption. For example, I love their vitamin C so much, which is also really good for your skin. If you didn't know, everybody loves it. I mean, it's probably the most popular vitamin C amongst all of my friends and family. We love Symbiotica. Their vitamin C is formulated with liposomal technology, which basically means the vitamin C is delivered to the part of your digestive tract where it can be optimally absorbed. And I just love throwing one in my bag on the go, especially when I'm traveling. Symbiotica makes it so easy to stick to a routine, not just because of their supplements being great and tasting great and making me feel great, but also because they get delivered monthly. That means I never have to worry about refilling my supplements or running out and it's just so easy to pause a delivery or add a new supplement to my delivery. With Symbiotica, I've really noticed an improvement in my skin health, but also I feel like I have more energy and mental clarity. Symbiotica has countless high quality supplements that you can choose from. Sleep supplements, cognitive supplements, anti-aging supplements. If you're not sure which supplements would be best for your specific needs, you can do a short quiz on Symbiotica's website and they'll recommend what you could benefit from. This year is your year. Are you ready to feel the results? Head over to symbiotica.com and use code ROTTEN for 15% off plus free shipping on your subscription order. That's symbiotica.com and use code ROTTEN. Now the police were worried because, I mean, well, for one, they knew that Sally was not his kid. But second of all, they knew this Frank guy. His name was not Frank Warner, but according to the description that everybody was giving, his name was Frank LaSalle. Now, six months before Sally was kidnapped, he had just been released from prison. He served a sentence for statutory rape of five, five different girls. Oh my god. Between the ages of 12 and 14. Remember what's between the ages of 12 and 14, according to Humbert Humbert? A nymphet. So who the hell is Frank LaSalle, right? What kind of guy is this? We don't know much about his early life because there's not a ton of records on it. Oh, and Frank is a compulsive liar. So his story changes every two seconds. And unlike Humbert in Lolita, Frank is not well-spoken nor well-educated. Anytime he writes anything, it's littered with grammatical errors. And a lot of the things he passionately talks about... Well, the very next day, he's most likely going to just contradict himself. Like he was one of those guys. On top of that, he changed his last name a lot. He said it was Patterson. I'm Frank Johnson. Call me Frank LaPlante. Oh, I'm Frank O'Keefe. But it was always Frank. One of his favorite aliases to use was Frank Fogg, which is just so weird. I don't know. I guess it's appropriate because most of his life is quite foggy, but he was just Frank Fogg. We do know that he was briefly married and that he had a son, and he claimed that his wife took the child and left him. 
and soon after he meets a woman by the name of Dorothy Dare at a carnival. Now, Dorothy's about to turn 18 years old. She was born in Philadelphia. She lived with her parents. She literally just graduated high school, but neither of them cared about the huge age gap. And it was, it was huge. He was 43. She had just turned 18. And after a few days of knowing each other, yeah, a few days, Frank was like, hey, you want to get married or something? Like really romantic. And she said, you know what? Sure, let's do it. And the two of them eloped. Now, Dorothy's dad was understandably furious when he found this out. He's like, what the hell is wrong with you? Are you crazy? This man is twice your age and you've known him for what? A week? And I even investigated him. I asked a friend who asked a friend and they knew this Frank guy. And this guy's already married to somebody else. He used a fake name to marry you, Dorothy. But even then, you know, David calls the cops on him, says that this guy is marrying people while he's already married, which is a crime back then. He also states that his daughter was only 15 years old, which is a lie. So Frank gets arrested for kidnapping and statutory rape. He was ultimately arrested for inciting a minor. But the, I mean, the, his whole argument was Dorothy's not a minor. She's 18 years old and she's legally married. I have the papers right here. The police were confused, but you're still married to your ex-wife. So regardless, this is a crime. And Dorothy was screaming the whole time. No, he told me the truth. He couldn't have been married before. There's no way. And if he was, I would want to die. Like she was desperate about this guy. I don't know what it is about Frank. Honestly, he's not the most attractive man. I would say that he's probably super manipulative. So the judge dismisses Frank's charges. But he was found guilty of another charge, a hit and run. And he was ordered to pay $50 for that hit and run, $250 for giving false information, and to spend 15 days in jail, which doesn't sound like a hefty period. Mm -hmm. But uh, he refused to pay the fines, and they upped it to another 30 days in jail. So that's just the type of guy that he is. Dorothy patiently waited for him to get out. She couldn't wait to start over with the man of her dreams. And the two of them, hand in hand, they moved to Atlantic City. They had a daughter. But it wasn't sunshine and rainbows like she thought it would be. He was constantly cheating. When their child was only three years old, Dorothy found Frank in the car with another woman. And she was pissed, okay? She starts bonking this woman on the head with her shoe. And she left Frank, sued him for desertion and non-payment of child support. So it's all like, you know funny hee hee ha ha right not really but you get the idea she found out that he was cheating until you find out that the other woman well it was a girl she was 12 years old oh my yeah so turns out frankie was grooming multiple girls typically around 12 to 15 years old the entire time that he was married to dorothy the police even found out what he was doing. Some officers were going out to eat during their shift, and it was around 3 in the morning, and they see this very young girl just sitting alone at the restaurant, like at a booth. Hey, what are you doing alone at such an hour? Like, why are you out? You look really young. How old are you? And she immediately confessed everything. She was like, oh, shoot, I'm here to meet this 40-year-old man. I mean, it's supposed to be a date. His name is Frank LaSalle, and he works at an auto body shop. They're like, what? A 40-year-old? You're underage? What kind of date is that? And she's like, well, I've already met him before and he forced me into doing really intimate things with him. And then he blackmailed me. He said that if I don't bring a bunch of friends and introduce them to him so that he could do the same thing to them, he's going to tell my parents what we did. So the police find out that these girls, Loretta, Margaret, Sarah, Irma, and Virginia were all assaulted by Frank in this like two month period. The oldest was 15 years old and the youngest two were 12 years old. 
all four of the girls, they talk to the police and they talk about how they were assaulted by Frank. I mean, it's despicable. The police put out a warrant for Frank's arrest, but they couldn't even find the guy. He wasn't at work. He wasn't at home. He obviously wasn't with Dorothy. Like he was nowhere to be found. So they start constantly surveilling the place that he's supposed to live at, his residence. And they see a car registered to Frank. Pull up into the driveway. Let's get him. They ascend onto the house. They search the place up and down. And all they find is a 19-year-old guy who claims to be Frank's brother-in-law. But what he forgot to mention to the police was that Frank just ran out the back door and narrowly escaped arrest. It would take a good half year to track down Frank. He later pleaded no contest to the rape charges and he was given like two and a half years on each rape charge. So that's about 12 years. He gets sent to Trenton State Prison and he's seen smiling on his mugshot. Just so creepy. Now that 12 and a half year sentence should teach him a lesson. But tell me why this serial rapist was released after 14 months in prison. 14 months. He gets sent back to prison on bad checks and obtaining money under false pretenses. And this guy's out again. And now he's got not a single penny to his name. He heads over to the YMCA, which is across the street from Woolworths in Camden, New Jersey, where he would bump into 10-year-old Sally Horner trying to steal a 10-cent notebook. And now the police are looking for him. Early on when Sally's missing, I mean, they knew that it was Frank. They knew that this was Frank LaSalle. That's what the description is. This, is, mm. this has got to be the guy. He definitely has no daughter named Sally, and Sally Horner is missing. There was even a sighting. So a young couple by the name of Robert and Jean, they were headed on like a day trip to Bridgentine Beach, right? I think that's what it's called. So they didn't really have a lot of money, and this was kind of like their makeshift honeymoon, the entire family. So Robert and Jean, they're newlyweds, and all of Robert's family, they're going to head over to the beach during the day. It's a small little town near Atlantic City, and this is the most extravagant vacation that they could afford. So in the car, we have Jean, Robert, Robert's mom, Robert's older sister, and nine-year-old little sister. So a lot of people, they were packed in there like sardines. Somewhere along the highway, the car tires just blow out. Robert pulls over to the side of the road. Thankfully, nobody was hurt. But I mean, there was no fixing this. There was no throwing on a spare tire. No, like this car's not going to be driving anytime soon. So they're super stressed. I mean, they're all strapped for cash. They're thinking about how many meals do we have to skip to pay for this damage? And our one vacation is now lost. And a station wagon pulls up. A middle-aged man gets out and introduces his daughter. Hey, I'm Frank. This is my daughter, Sally. I'm guessing you guys need some help. Robert and Jean get into his car, and the young people are in the back. The young couple are in the back. Sally's in the front. There was obviously no room for Robert's other families, you know, to get in the car. So the whole plan was that he was going to take Robert and Jean to get some tools, come back, fix up the car. Besides, they were under the impression that they're going to be right back. Mm-hmm. So Frank drives him to a roadside phone. Robert calls his dad and he's like, hey, can you just come pick us all up? Gene uh, and I are going to stay behind, figure out what to do with the car. But mom and the two sisters, they're just waiting by this car on the side of the highway. So can you come? Mm-hmm. Robert gets back into the wagon. Frank starts driving them to a burger shop and they get a table. And a waitress even knew Frank and Sally as Frank and daughter Sally. Mm-hmm. Address them by name. So they must be regulars. Frank over burgers tells Robert, Listen, you and your wife seem like really nice people. I mean, this is like you said it was a honeymoon sort of vacation. Why don't I drive you and the whole family down to Bridgerton Beach so your trip's not ruined and I'll take care of your car? Hmm. They're like, what? Really? You would do that? 
Oh my God, thank you. So the whole family is like, yes, like, let's do it. Mom, sisters, Frank, Sally, Robert, Jean, all of them, they pack into Frank's car and they head over to the beach. And of course, Sally immediately hits it off with nine-year-old Barbara. They played in the sand. They went swimming. Frank was telling the rest of the family about their lives. Frank is a divorcee. He ran a gas station in Atlantic City, and Sally lived with him during the summer and with her mom during those school years. I mean, there was no red flags. Sally called him daddy, treated him like a daughter would treat a father. She was affectionate. She was nice. They seemed to have a really healthy relationship. And then later that day, she said, Dad, can you drive me and Barbara back to our house to wash up? We have sand everywhere, and we we feel icky. Oh, my gosh. It was just about 10 minutes away, and Robert's family agreed. But 10 minutes became an hour, and that became two hours. And Robert's family started to get very worried. I mean, what could possibly be taking them so long? At this point, Robert's dad even showed up to the beach, and he was so pissed. He was like, why the hell did you let Barbara go with strangers? Even if they seem nice, what the hell is wrong with you? But before they called the cops, Frank drove up with the kids and took them to their wrecked car. So I don't know what happened during Uh this two hours. I couldn't find any sources that allege abuse or if there was a different plan and then Frank decided too many people saw them. Maybe he shouldn't have taken them to the restaurant. But I definitely think something shady was going down. Yeah. Maybe Frank was trying to kidnap Barbara but decided against it last minute. Yeah. Because we know he's not a nice guy by any means. He's not just driving them to wash up. Maybe he's like, watching them wash up you know like this Uh, is a really disgusting guy so i'm not really sure i don't know if barbara ever reported any sort of abuse even to her family members so i don't want to like speculate but Mm -hmm. i can't imagine it was just an innocent trip for frank so he ends up fixing their car and afterwards sally invites barbara to come stay with her for the weekend and her parents immediately are like oh sure maybe next weekend and thankfully they never reached out they never wanted barbara to go with frank i mean that two hours of panic was enough for them Mm -hmm. But that was a sighting early on. Meanwhile, back at home, Ella's not doing well. She's so upset with herself for letting her daughter go off with a predator. And she was just blaming herself nonstop. She was supposed to keep Sally safe. She just wanted her to have a good time on vacation. And now she's got to work overtime just to keep her telephone line on and not let the bills default. Because Sally needed a phone to call. Sally needed a place to come home to. A lot of people said, you know, Ella, I don't think she's ever going to call. But she needed to be able to pick up if she did. She also developed insomnia. During the late hours of the night, she found herself in Sally's room just holding her toys and games and clothes. Ella constantly rewashed all of Sally's clothes because she said when she comes home, she wants them to be fresh and ready for her. As more time passed, I think Ella wanted her daughter to be dead. Because as time passes, she's like, whatever is out there for Sally has got to be worse than death. And then Sally's 12th birthday passed, and she's still missing. The police left her case open, but I mean, the tips and trails, like, they're just all fading. They're dying off. There was no solid lead to Sally, or even her body. The press moved on, too. There were other headlines to cover, news stories that they needed to talk about. The wife of a Philadelphia magistrate went missing. I mean, that's going to get more views, right? But Sally wasn't dead. She was alive. And every waking second of her life with Frank was complete torture. I mean, we know some things, 
but we don't know all the things, so the rest we can only assume. So we know that right before Frank and Sally left Atlantic City, Frank somehow found out the police were coming for him. So they rushed to pack their things, but they left most of their belongings at the lodge. We don't know what they talked about or how Frank threatened her, but we can assume it was a lot of threatening. To anybody that asked, Sally confidently said, Frank is my dad, and told them her parents are divorced, and Frank, my dad, has custody, and he probably told her, do this, and nothing bad will happen to you, or your mm-hmm. family, because remember, I'm an FBI agent, and I could go kill your mom. I could go kill your brand new niece. So the two of them, they flee Atlantic City, and they head to Baltimore, and Sally said that this is where Frank really started to assault her regularly, almost every single day. He had her so manipulated and terrified that he even took the risk of having her go to school. He thought it'd be weird if his daughter never left the house or didn't have a normal life. The neighbors would start investigating. They'd start getting suspicious. So Sally started going to St. Anne's Catholic School, and she went by the name Madeline LaPlante. Up until this point, Sally had no idea that he was a mechanic. She genuinely thought that her dad was an FBI agent. At school, Sally, or I guess Madeline rather, she was a super quiet kid, but she never really had many close friends and she just always kind of kept to herself. Sally knew that if she had friends, Frank would just assault them too. So, I mean, this girl is really above her years. Like, she's so smart and she's so compassionate. And now, it's not clear why Frank chose a Catholic school. A lot of sources say that nobody remembers him practicing religion in any way. Maybe it was just kind of convenient. Or some suspect, sinisterly, that the Catholic schools ask a lot of less questions. Maybe it's believed that... um because the church could potentially be a breeding ground for abuse sometimes. Maybe Frank thought his secret would be safer in an institution that is somewhat notorious for pedophilia. We don't know. That's what some sources suspect, because it was just bizarre that he specifically kept choosing Catholic schools along the way, Mm. even when they moved across the country. It was always a Catholic school. So after school, Sally was subjected to sexual abuse nonstop. And during these rapes, he would yell at her, nobody cares about you but me. So she was kind of brainwashed into thinking like, it's useless to ask for help. No one's going to help me. In fact, they'll just make it worse. And I think a part of her maybe started believing that he genuinely was trying to be a father figure because she's never had a father in her life. So she didn't really know that this isn't what dads do. So all the while, Sally's finally adjusting to school and becoming Madeline. And Frank told her, We have to pack our bags. FBI put me on a new case, and we need to move to the Southwest to investigate all the newest, latest happenings. In reality, the DA in Camden County indicted Frank on the charge of kidnapping of Sally Horner, and he was facing 30 to 35 years if he was caught and convicted. So Frank, I mean, he's middle-aged. That is pretty much a life sentence at that point. He wanted to make sure that they never found him. He was going to put as much distance between himself and the investigation. So they pack up and they head all the way to Dallas, Texas. And Sally was no longer Madeline, but she was Florence Planette. He also changed the story to say that he was widowed, like his wife was viciously killed, not divorced. Now, a lot of people in the neighborhood in Dallas, Texas, they knew Frank. He moved in. It was a trailer park. Everybody knew each other. And they thought he was a bit aloof, just kind of cold, standoffish. Nobody really remembered Sally. So Frank gets another job as a mechanic and Sally gets sent to another Catholic school. And even with the trauma of everything going on in her life, she was forced to maintain good grades. Because that would show that Frank is a splendid dad. So she had mainly A's. 
And none of her neighbors, none of her teachers, nobody noticed anything wrong with Florence. She seemed like a normal 12-year-old girl with a relatively strict dad. He never let her out of his sight. But it seemed normal. I mean, his wife died. Her mom died. Mm-hmm. How do you process that type of trauma? He's a single parent. Sure, he's a helicopter parent just constantly hovering over Sally, but it kind of makes sense. Sally otherwise seemed normal. She would bake at home. She had this dog that she loved. She had an allowance for clothes and sweets, which honestly was a lot better than a lot of the kids in that neighborhood. She would go to her neighbor's houses, go swimming at the community pool with her friends. One of the neighbors literally said, there were several times that we noticed the need for the love and care of a mother, but we both felt like the the dad, he was doing a good job. He was providing better living conditions for her and we thought it was enough. Some neighbors were so shocked. They said, I was alone with Sally many times. I felt like she could have confided in me and she should have known that. Sally was in my house many times a day and had access to several phones. She could have just used one. She had plenty of time to talk to me about being kidnapped if she wanted to. And I'm sure she knew me well enough to know that if she had said anything like that, I would have helped her. Again, these neighbors are so annoying Mm. because it just sounds like you're trying to make it seem like, oh, I did everything I could and Mm -hmm. she trusted me and she knew it and I'm such a trustworthy person. And I'm sure that they would have helped if they knew, but there's probably a million reasons why. This kind of sounds like a really indirect victim-blaming type situation. Yeah. So at this point, like I said, she still believed him to be an FBI agent and he had told her, the FBI wants you to be with me so that I can teach you the consequences of stealing and I can raise you to be a law-abiding citizen. So it just kind of made sense in her head. But soon after, Sally had an appendicitis attack and needed an operation. She spent three days at the hospital. None of the nurses, none of the doctors picked up any red flags between her and Frank. Truly nobody. She spent three days in the hospital and another week recovering at home. And that's just kind of when her whole behavior changed. She went from being healthy, lighthearted, and to walking like an old woman, Most of her neighbors paid no mind. They just didn't care that she was distraught. She seemed lethargic. They didn't care about any of this, except for a woman by the name of Ruth Janish. Now, Ruth never had an easy life growing up, okay? Side note, her mom was verbally abusive. She grew up hearing that she was worthless practically every single day of her life. Ruth had been married many times before, each husband treating her worse than the last. Her third husband, George, his specialty was cheating on her. That was his go-to. He always picked married women to sleep with. And if Ruth found out and she started flipping out, like, why are you cheating on me? He would say, well, I left you the husband. You can sleep with the husband. Wow. I mean, it was just really aggressive. Obviously, it put a ton of strain in their relationship. Ruth was also just popping out another baby practically every single year. Almost every year that they were married, they had a kid. And she was constantly pregnant or in labor. And that just added to the stress of everything. And in spite of each other, the couple started to take out their vengeance for each other on their kids' birth certificates I've never heard anything like this before. They gave their kids the same middle names as their former lovers. The ones that they cheated on each other with. Yes. So you think that they're going to be good to these kids? Probably not. And financially, they weren't doing great. Ruth was a stay-at-home mom and George worked these odd jobs here and there. They they barely had enough money to make ends meet. And to every new mouth to feed every year, I mean, it's only going to make it worse. 
Eventually, the two of them take their kids. They move to Texas, which at this point, they have a lot of kids. And she practically neglected all of them, which, by the way, she'll have 11 total later on. It it was her quest for life companions, really. She had 10 marriages in her whole life. But back to Texas. She was overwhelmed, stressed. Her kids would act out. She would yell at them the same way that her mom did. So she was just cycling. This verbal abuse cycle was going from generation to generation. But all the while, she was still with George in Dallas. And they move into this tiny little trailer with her big family. And right next door is Frank and Sally. This is my favorite way to unwind at the end of a long day. I make myself some hot chocolate. I wrap up in my coziest blanket and I become Detective June Parkett. I don't actually become a detective, but that's how I feel when I'm playing June's journey. You play as June and the story starts with you flying from London to New York to investigate the suspicious murder of your sister and brother-in-law. But that's just the first in a very long line of suspicious murders. There's so many family secrets, twists, and you get to uncover all of these mysteries through a series of hidden objects games. Like you search for hidden letters or other objects that help you advance in the story. The storytelling in this game is impeccable. I mean, every detail is important. It stimulates you because you feel like a detective. The game takes June literally all around the world, from New York to Havana to Paris, and you get to meet all kinds of characters. I do not trust any new characters at this point because everybody seems to have a hidden motive. And as the story is progressing, you can learn about new characters as you collect bits of information to build your photo album. I also really love the dialogue in this game and just how immersive it is. There are some scenes where you really feel like you are Detective June. There's mystery, murder, danger, even romance. Sometimes it does get a little intense, so if I feel like taking a break from all the crazy plot twists, I go back to my little private island. Okay, it's not little, it's actually huge. It's called Orchid Island, and I get to decorate it in any way that I want. I have a waterfall on my island, and I'm currently making a train station route. There's just something so satisfying about getting to color code everything and make sure all the pieces fit. It's such a cozy yet thrilling game. It's almost as satisfying as puzzling the pieces of June's family's mysteries together because, listen, I'm telling you, my husband will definitely find me on the couch later today playing June's Journey. Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. My dogs will eat anything. I mean, I have two Frenchies and it's a daily struggle to keep them from trying to eat toilet paper, bees, even trash. My dogs have no idea what's good for them. And you know, that's okay because their job is to be cute. My job is to take care of them to the best of my ability. That is why I only buy the farmer's dog dog food. Think about it. Most dog foods claims it's made out of whole ingredients. But then why does it come in the form of these very crusty pellets? But dogs will eat anything you give them, even dry kibble. Most dog food claims that they're made out of whole ingredients. But when I stare at these dry kibbles, it's very hard for me to see the whole ingredients. And I always had to mix in bone broth or water because it would be so dry that my dogs would eat too quickly and they would hack it up. It just didn't look tasty. The farmer's dog believes that all dogs deserve to eat real fresh food. That's why farmer's dog dog food is made from whole wheat and veggies and gently cooked in human grade kitchens to preserve nutritional value. It makes me feel so good seeing my dog's little tails wagging. Sometimes Mango's entire butt will shake when it's time for their dinner because they know and I know that they're eating fresh healthy food. It genuinely looks like human food. I've noticed such an improvement in how shiny and soft their coat is and their breath doesn't teleport me into another dimension anymore. I can see the veggies in their food. I mean 
mean, my dog always gains a little bit of weight this time last year just because they move around less when it gets a little bit colder. So I feel like it's very important to always watch portions in the winter months. The farmer's dog makes it easy to monitor my dog's portions. Our dog's meals arrive in pre-portioned, ready-to-serve packs, which is super convenient. All you need to do is tell the farmer's dog about your puppy or your dog, and they'll deliver personalized, vet-developed recipes for as little as $2 a day. And you can adjust the recipe selection, portion sizes, and delivery cadence according to your needs and schedule. Get 50% off your first box of fresh, healthy food at thefarmersdog.com slash mango. That's 50% off your first box at thefarmersdog.com slash mango. Now, since Ruth's daughters were about five, six, and seven at the time, they were immediately interested in Sally. They wanted her to be like their big sister. They wanted them to all hang out. Meanwhile, Ruth was kind of into Frank. She, at this point, was freely cheating on George, too. She's like, you know what? If you're going to cheat on me, I'm going to cheat on you. And thought that Frank was polite. You know, he's, he's pretty handsome. He's a single dad. He's so good to his kid. So initially, Ruth starts paying the two a lot more attention because she was attracted to Frank. But slowly... As time passed, she realized something wasn't right. The closeness between Frank and Sally, it just seemed wrong. It just didn't seem natural. Things got worse after Sally came back from the hospital. Frank got more possessive, refused to let her out of his sight. She never had friends her own age. She never went anywhere without Frank. Just always stayed with him in that little trailer of his. Ruth tried to talk to Sally about it, but Sally just never opened up. Then a little while later, Ruth and George, they pack it up and move to California. So for some strange reason, whether it was to be close to Frank or to be close to Sally, Ruth writes Frank a letter. Hey, we moved to California. You should join us. There's so much more work over here and we could be neighbors again. So Frank oddly agreed. He was like, yeah, let's move to California. So he pulls Sally out of school, moves them even further from Camden now. This was the move that made Sally a lot more alert. She'd been with Frank for about 21 months now, almost two years, and she was starting to figure him out. She felt like he wasn't part of the FBI, that he didn't have eyes everywhere. He was just a creep. In California, she ended up telling a friend in school that her dad was having sex with her, and her friend told her, so calmly, by the way, that's just wrong. You ought to stop that right now. So I don't know, maybe that's what made Sally realize that this wasn't normal. Maybe Frank, for the past two years now, had tried to tell her that this is how it's supposed to be with a father and a daughter. Because mind you, Sally never had a father figure. Maybe he really did convince her this was normal. So whatever the case was, something just kind of clicked for Sally. She kept refusing Frank's advances. She still acted like he was her dad. I mean, it gave her this sense of power, though. He also stopped punishing her for saying no because he did in the beginning, but now he couldn't. And a lot of it, I think, might have to do with the fact that Sally was turning 13. Maybe that was just a little bit too old for Frank. She was one of those girls that was developed at an earlier age. And Frank the pedo, he didn't like that. He really did not. So all of this is kind of reminding me of Lolita about how he never punished her later on when she said no to his sexual advances. So he started giving her allowance to try to win her in that way. Then he also said it's because he loved her. But in reality, I mean, she was probably just getting a little bit too old. Anyways, in California, Sally was enrolled in school, but she decided to skip one day without Frank knowing because Ruth had invited her over. And Ruth did this so that she could question her. It had been bothering her since they moved from Dallas, Texas to California. She just wanted to know. So she sits Sally down and for hours she's grilling her. And finally, Sally feels comfortable enough to admit, so Frank is not my father. He's holding me hostage for two years. My mom's name is Ella, and I have an older sister named Susan, and I just want to go home. 
Ruth was shocked. Ruth was expecting an incestuous relationship. She was not suspecting any of this. She picked up her phone, handed it to Sally, and had her call her family. Sally's mom's line was ultimately disconnected because she was losing jobs due to her grief, but she called Susan's husband at work. Hello, Al? This is Sally. Can I speak to Susan? Oh my god. Al said he couldn't even contain his excitement. He had seen his wife suffer for two years. And he said, where are you? Give me your exact location. I'm with a lady friend in California. Can you please send the FBI here, please? And tell mom I'm okay. Don't worry. I just want to go home. I've been so scared to even call. Don't worry, Sal. I'll call the FBI. You stay right where you are. Susan jumped on the line and she was screaming, Sally, Sally, don't worry. Help is on the way. Just stay put. And she asked, how's Diana? And that's Susan's daughter, who was 19 months old at this point. And she said, she looks just like you. And both of them started crying on the phone. Sally hung up, looked at Ruth, and her face was stark white. And she said, oh God, what is he going to do when he finds out what I've done? And the FBI burst in, they rescue Sally, they wait to arrest Frank when he comes home, and Sally told them the whole story, how Frank kept telling her that if she went back home or if she ran away, she would be sent to prison. The government ordered him to keep her and take care of her and to make sure she turns into a law-abiding citizen. And at first, Sally denied being sexually abused. I think she felt ashamed. But after a doctor's exam, I mean, it was pretty evident. So she confessed to the truth, and she said, Frank was mean. He always scolded me. But the rest of the time, outside of the rapes, he did treat me like a father. He also kept a gun around. Again, Lolita. She broke down and finally said, I just want to go home. Meanwhile, Frank returned home to his trailer, and there were just dozens of police, FBI, surrounding him. He surrendered quietly. In jail, he denied kidnapping Sally. Straight up. He said, I'm her father. The mother, Ella, knew where she was since she, quote, vanished. Yet Ella and I had a romantic relationship. We had sex and we conceived Sally. I'm her biological father. They're like, what? You're such a bad liar. That doesn't, that, what kind of even lie is that? And he's like, well, I took her in when she was this little tiny thing. And I'm the father of six kids. Three by this wife, Mrs. Horner. So he's alleging that he was married to Ella. Can you imagine the trauma that Ella is feeling? Like this random stranger not only kidnapped your child, did unspeakable things to her for two years and now is alleging that you guys were married? What? And he said that he had three kids with another wife. I didn't take Sally from Camden, but New York. It was four years ago. Ella gave me her in New York, not two years ago. I mean, she kept the house for me. I gave her money and freedom better than what Ella was giving her. The police could have found me at any time. I wasn't breaking any laws. That's my kid. As soon as he spilled his lies, he stopped talking and he refused to say another word. He said, that's my story and that's what I'm sticking by. Goodbye. He was charged with taking a girl across state lines for immoral purposes as well as kidnapping. What about the sexual assault? Yeah, exactly. So Sally was terrified to the point that she couldn't even eat. She was terrified that Frank would be out on jail or out on bail. Then she was terrified that her family wouldn't want her once they realized that she was assaulted. And she had to fly back to Camden with the prosecutor. And she was greeted at the airport by Ella, Susan, Al, and their baby, Diana. She ran out of that gate booked it to her mom and they started crying and hugging and Sally was screaming I just want to go home I just want to go home and she reached out for Diana and hugged her so tightly and the worst part of all of this is that Sally couldn't go home just yet in fact she wasn't allowed to go home till the trial was over 
Why? Because they didn't know who to believe or how it was going to work out. So she was forced to stay at a children's shelter. Thankfully, she got along with the matron and the kids, but it was, it was rough to be without her family. Meanwhile, Frank kept pushing that he was Sally's dad. Even at the end, when the investigators were taking Sally, he said, take good care of my daughter, okay? What? Okay, so this guy seems like he's going to put up a fight, but out of nowhere, he said he wants to plead guilty. He wanted to confess to everything. He said, I just want to get it off my chest. My time to commence and to run is over. So he pleads guilty, and he was ordered to spend no less than 30 years in prison, but no more than 35 years for the kidnapping charge. He would have to spend at least 27 years in prison before parole. Sally was finally able to return home, but this time she was two weeks away from being 13, and she looked and acted more mature. I think, I think she was just forced to grow up in like one of the cruelest ways possible. She was just trying to live her best life. She started, you know, getting back at school. She really was a smart girl with big dreams. She wanted to be a doctor when she grew up, and she spent her time with her niece, and she looked happy. But randomly, her family said that she would just snap into this very melancholic mood. Not sad or depressed, but just like you knew something was wrong. And at the time, there was no counseling for victims of abuse. So she was never given the option of seeing a therapist. She never had one. And with all of this, she graduated middle school with all A's and with honors. Can you believe it? Like after all of this happened, she did have trouble making friends. though. everybody always gossiped about her. They didn't sit with her. And she was um, shamed for being a victim. A classmate said everybody looked at Sally as if she was a total whore. Wow. Another student said that no matter how you look at it, she was a slut. That was just the way it was back in those days. By the time that Sally was 15, she just had one friend named Carol. And Carol was a badass. So along with Sally, Carol was like, who cares what people are saying? We're just going to have fun. You and me, you don't need anybody else. They loved going to the beach together. And before high school started, they wanted one last fun trip. So they had their fake IDs. They caught a bus to the beach. They spent the day tanning. Then they went to the clubs at night. And Sally really didn't drink. She just had a blast with her best friend, Carol, right? And there she met a guy named Edward John Baker, otherwise known as Eddie. He was this good-looking 20-year-old from Jersey. He was tall. He had this dark hair. He looked like a movie star. And she lied to him and said that she was 17. And honestly, I think anyone would have believed her. She was really taken by him. She just wanted to be in a relationship and it was impossible back home. Everybody knew she had been kidnapped and they thought of her as a slut for it. But Eddie didn't know any of that. So they hung out all weekend together. And then she asked Carol for a huge favor. Carol, do you mind catching the bus back to Camden alone? Eddie said that I could ride back to Vineland with him for the day and I'll catch a bus home from there. Carol's like, sure, I guess I don't mind. I mean, he does seem nice. So Sally hugged Carol and she was just so excited. She wanted to spend some extra time with Eddie. And around 11 p.m., they started to drive to Eddie's place. It was dark outside. Eddie was going faster than he should have. And just 17 miles away from his house, there was an accident. And the police were so shocked when they were called out. Four cars had crashed into each other, and Eddie's car was crushed in the back of a parked car, which then crashed into another parked car. And thankfully, the two truck drivers of those parked trucks were away from the cars when the impact happened, but Eddie ended up with a broken left knee, a gash on his right arm, but he survived. The crash killed Sally Horner instantly. No. It took hours for rescue teams to free her from the wreck. She had been completely crushed by the truck's tailgate. She had a fractured skull, a broken neck, and a broken right leg. Her chest was crushed, and she had severe internal injuries. 
The damage was so severe, the police called in Al to identify Sally. They didn't think that Ella or Susan could handle it. And as one last fuck you to the family, Frank sent flowers to the Horner home the morning of the funeral. Eddie was later arrested for reckless homicide. He was released on bail, but the biggest problem was that this wasn't his first car crash. A year ago, he was driving his mom's car and he ran a red light and it caused this huge accident. Nobody died in that one, thankfully, but I mean, it's just, I think he was recklessly driving, if I'm being honest. Eddie was later found not guilty on all counts and there was no reason for his acquittal, which is shady, and Ella sued Eddie for $50,000. It's unclear if she got any money out of the settlement, but hopefully she did. And Eddie went on to live his best life, get married, and had a son named Edward Jr. And in some sick twist of fate, Edward Jr. died in a car accident. And he died on the spot like Sally Horner. Now, back to Frank, because yeah, there's more. He changed his mind and he tried to appeal pleading guilty. He claimed that he saved Sally from her mom, who was an evil person apparently, who was always out with some man or lounging around at home in bed. But you know, what the heck? It didn't work. Ruth, on the other hand, felt like the hero title belonged to her. She kept all the newspaper clippings and letters from Frank from jail. Yeah, he wrote to her in a scrapbook. She would show her kids. Sure, I abused you, but I was capable of doing something good. Look at this. And one day, Ruth told Rachel about the book Lolita. Rachel is Ruth's daughter. Uh-huh. So she was like, Rachel, look at this book Lolita. Doesn't it sound like Sally Horner's story? It even named Sally Horner in the back. The girl that I saved. And Rachel finally, as an adult, looked at her and said, Mom, there's something I need to tell you. Frank didn't only molest Sally, he also molested me. No way. While Sally was at school, he invited me over and I was only five years old. He was nice and I was jealous that Sally had such a great dad, actually. He always, he always bought her toys, candy, he paid attention to her. Meanwhile, George, dad, was always busy with other women. So I went. And he told me that I could have any toy of Sally's, but first, I had to give him a blowjob. And so I did. And then she doesn't remember if it kept going or not, because she just, she couldn't talk about it anymore. And she couldn't talk about it anymore, not because Rachel was traumatized, but because Ruth completely shut down. She was incapable of comforting her own kid. She couldn't even connect to Rachel emotionally, not even now. So they just never talked about it ever again. And Rachel never really got the help that she needed from her mom. Frank made it only 16 years into a sentence before dying. And the parallels between the two books are insane. So mind you, Lolita was, the manuscript for that book was burned almost twice. And Vladimir's wife is the one that stopped him. He wanted to throw it in the fire because he had writer's block. And he's like, listen, Humbert Humbert's a pedophile, but I don't know what's next. And his wife, his proof editor, his secretary, his manager, his everything, literally the backbone of his whole career was preventing him. And she was like, no, you just need to think harder. Now, Vladimir was a true crime fan, so he was all over the newspapers, always reading about true crime cases. And during that time period, while he was writing the manuscript for Lolita, Sally Horner's case was massive. So we can only imagine that he took inspiration from her case heavily because, I mean, everything about it, even the age... Even the car accident. So Sally ends up dying in a car accident. Charlotte dies in a car accident. I mean, it's just bizarre. The moving from motel to motel. Even the way that Frank and Humbert both try to justify their assaults by saying, well, I don't force her anymore because I love her. 
the way that both of them are sent to school while they're being assaulted, like they're manipulated to that level and that degree. The fact that Frank tries to say that Sally is his own daughter, whereas Lolita in the book, I mean, that's literally his daughter. Well, he's the sole custody, you know, person Mm -hmm. of Lolita. I mean, there's just so many parallels. Humbert even threatened Dolores in the book that if Lolita, that if she didn't go along with it or if she tried to run or tell anyone, she would be put in reform school, maybe even juvenile detention. Remember, Dolores was also freed by a mysterious phone call to the hospital. Immediately after, when Humbert was arrested, he states that he would have given himself at least 35 years for rape, which is Frank's exact sentence. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, it's just all kind of weird. And it's not like he didn't know about Sally Horner's case because he even said, did I do what Frank, the auto mechanic, did to Sally Horner? You know, like he even wrote that. It's just weird. And the fact that he never brought it up again and the fact that he was like, no, it's not. And how do you feel about the whole thing? Like the question of, can you be this inspired by true events? I mean, I get it. Most crime thriller, mystery fiction novels, which that's like a huge genre. A lot of them, they're pretty realistic. So it feels like maybe they are slightly inspired by certain kidnapping cases because you want to be realistic. But this is this is a little above and beyond. What are your thoughts? And I hope you guys enjoyed this week's episode and I will see you on Sunday for the mini-sode. Bye.